We are in the middle of our series called Colonizing Earth with the Life of Heaven. It's a series about the kingdom of God. Hopefully you've gathered that. And the idea being that in the death and resurrection of Jesus, he has been declared with power to be the king of the world. And he is little by little making all places and things come under his sway. And this is very good news or meant to be in a world where there is plenty of bad news. Submitting to his kingship, unlike any other mastery to which you might submit yourself, will in the end result in flourishing, large-hearted life. Submitting to the mastery of anything else will make you like that thing you're submitting to, and will drain the life plumb out of you. So I was trying to think what the topic might be that would fit well with Mother's Day, a holiday whose heart I like, whose execution I dislike. Because I'm in favor of mothers, I'm not in favor of Mother's Day. It is a holiday set up for failure for everyone. Mothers, the ones we're meant to honor in some special way on this day, are set up, as best I can tell, to be only disappointed. There's a test. And now there's social media for grading. A test of how much are you really loved? How much are you really esteemed? How much do you really matter? What happens today will be the only proof of it. There will be no other proofs. Sorry. It's also a day that reminds you of your own losses and failures or things that didn't come. If you happen to have been mothered but don't have any children, then it's a maybe a nightmare day that shouts in your face. And if you happen not to have a mom anymore, then again, the same screaming in your face. And so I wondered what kind of topic could we do to address that dynamic, but not make it all about mothering? And it occurred to me at nightly prayer with Ander the other night, as I had been praying about what will the topic be, as I was reading Luke 11 to him, I thought, oh, of course. This thing called prayer, it coalesces with motherhood so beautifully And it's something that Jesus seemed to have a disproportionate interest in, you know, being God and all. Fully God, fully man, praying in such a way that he almost tells us how to do nothing. He doesn't tell you how to fully fund your 401k. He doesn't tell you how to do small engine repair on your broken Briggs and Stratton lawnmower. He doesn't tell you the best dishwasher to get. He doesn't even tell you how to operate a small group or how to preach a sermon, Martin Luther reminds us, but he teaches us how to pray. And in Luke's gospel, he talks about prayer a good bit. His disciples see him at prayer and they say, wow, you seem to have an unhealthy preoccupation with this. Just kidding, they don't say unhealthy. They say, will you teach us how to pray as if it were something? We might... Editorially comment as we watch 
Why do they want him to teach them how to pray? And why so many stories about going at it persistently, shamelessly, with importunity, with asking, and so many reassurances about how God is and how favorably disposed to us he is and how critical this seemingly childish activity is. Why? And then this story about a persistent widow that you've heard many times before. And it occurred to me, it came all together. Yes, prayer is the perfect thing to talk about on Mother's Day because I had read this article in the New York Times that was titled this, The Dumbest Job in the World. Title, Mother. This is written by a woman. And she was calling motherhood the dumbest job in the world, and she gave a faux job announcement, a posting. This position manages to be of utmost importance, and yet somehow also the least visible and or least respected in the entire organization. You will enjoy a whole bunch of superficial attention and lip service from culture, advertisers, and politicians, but will never receive a credible follow-up in the form of a concrete plan for advancement, advancement, support, benefits, or retirement. Please note that although you will coordinate, plan, and do almost everything, you should expect to crash face-first into bed every night, feeling that you've accomplished basically nothing. Welcome, she says. She goes on to describe this dumbest job in the world that even if you have a full-time job outside the home, you're still entrusted with a full-time job in the home, only it's not paid. Strangely, your college-educated husband will no longer be able to read or do anything useful, she says, in helping the children. More dad shaming. And she says you'll not get any meaningful evaluations except sometimes the employees will choose to evaluate you horrifically at Thanksgiving. (laughs) The primary purpose of this position is to train you. I mean, it's to train people, sorry. It's to train the people you love the most in the world to leave you forever. Told you it was dumb, she says. It's a dumb job, she says. It's tongue-in-cheek. You people get it. It's thankless. You're sometimes wondering if it's doing any good. You spend yourself and feel like, at the end of the day, I didn't do anything. And then you're, you're investing all your life in these critters who are going to, if you're successful root you out of, your li- out of their lives in some way and be gone. So congratulations. But it makes me think when I hear her say that motherhood is dumb for the reasons mentioned that in a similar manner, prayer can seem to most of us in our time just as dumb. We characterize it as, hey, make sure you spend plenty of time going off to some place where no one else is and talking to someone you can't see as if they're there with real things, expecting actual outcomes to be altered as you do it. If you said these things, if you 
at work, during working hours, when there was real business to be done, a real economy to be sustained, and goods and services to be produced, and clients to be tended to, you actually prayed as if it mattered, you would think you were being dumb, foolish, silly. But Jesus tells his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. And it's important just as a starting point to realize as I'm teaching the kids in the children's communicants class and as you're teaching your kids all the time that you have to even listen to the teachings about prayer, come to believe that Jesus is, as Dallas Ward said, the most intelligent man who ever lived, who knows the most important things as the representative of God about what it is for us to be human. And he's telling his disciples in a world where he knows that they're going to be constantly threatened to give up, to say, Jesus ain't coming back. Wrongs are not going to be righted. He's not listening. He says, here's your resource so that you don't give up. Pray. Seriously? That's what you've got for us? But he thinks it's so important that he tells a lot of stories about it. And here's one of them. So his disciples would always pray and not give up. He says, in a certain town there was a judge who feared neither God nor cared about people. In other words, he had already failed his calling. A judge is someone who has all kinds of people involved in legal professions, a representative of God. They're supposed to maintain equity. They're supposed to make sure that people have equal protections, regardless uh, how many zeros are on their 1040 form, regardless of what color their skin is or where they happen to be born. A judge is supposed to care a lot about what God thinks because people can be injured by injustice. But this one, he's holding up a negative example to show the goodness of God. He feared neither God, and he didn't care about people. And there was this widow who kept coming to him with a plea. Grant me justice against my adversary. A widow says, Kappen is a 24-carat loser in the first century. She's lost at life, not by her own doing necessarily. She has no resources and no recourses. She has no husband. She has no standing. She has no income. Gary... Hagen or Hagen, the director of International Justice Mission, would say in his book, The Locust Effect, in a talk I've heard him give, that one of the primary perpetuators of ongoing poverty in the world is this very dynamic. That if you live in most of the developing world, bad news if you don't have a husband. Bad news if you're poor and you're a woman. You have a husband, you might have some protection. You, your husband dies then someone stronger than you can come and take your land, take your 
stuff, take your body, take your life, threaten you, injure you. You have no protection under the law. A huge number of vulnerable people have no protection under the law. So this should connect with a lot of folks. And Jesus is holding up a woman who literally has no one else in the world and no other resource. And she's being pestered and she's being violated and her rights are somehow being squashed. And so she keeps coming to this judge. And we're told for some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this woman, this woman keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the passage that Eve read in NIV 11 says, so that she won't eventually attack me. Because a literal rendering would be something like, so she won't blacken my eye. He's worried, perhaps, in some way or another, that if he doesn't at some point relent and pay attention to this woman who can't, like the other people that he's paying attention to, bribe him. See, we're urged to see, Kenneth Bailey, for instance, would say, don't don't envision a modern courtroom with a black robe and a gavel and all stand for the honorable someone with a the third after their name. Envision someone sitting, reclined, with pillows and side deals. You get the justice if you've got the money. If you can bribe the judge, you'll get some favor. It's not altogether different in our system. There's a pretty big disparity between the resourced and the non-resourced and who gets the best outcomes judicially. You get better representation if you've got more money. This woman has no money. And the judge is worried that if he doesn't relent and give in to her some way, that she might just beat him up. That she might dot his eye. That she might make his life a nightmare. And so he says, okay, even though I don't care about anything like justice, and I don't care about people, and I don't care about God, I'm going to relent and give you protection against your adversary. And the Lord says, listen to what this unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Now, it's easy to hear these words where Jesus is clearly saying, God is not like an unjust judge. If even an unjust judge, an unrighteous judge, a crooked judge who doesn't give a flip when he does his work about what God's evaluation of it is. He doesn't think about having to give an answer to God for his work, and he sure don't care about public opinion. And if even he can be persuaded with this woman who keeps bothering him, who keeps coming back to him, what about a resourceful judge, father, king, who actually likes you, who's actually inclined to tremble with compassion when he sees the helpless and harassed, 
who are unshepherded, who weeps when he sees a city of people who have extended to him the corporate middle finger, we don't want you, to the one who is filled with compassion and he gives sight to the blind, who looks at a man who's got no prospects and says, what do you want me to do for you? Because he's crippled and he's been that way for four decades. Jesus says, if you, it's easy enough to see, if you've got a God like that, how much more by your persistence, by your bothersomeness, by your coming back over and over and over again, will he listen to you as you cry out day and night, he says, for justice. Now, you could hear this and come to a faulty conclusion. Namely, that God's hard to persuade and therefore you need the right technique. A lot of times I've heard preaching and teaching on prayer and prayer stuff that we kind of adopt in ways that we come at prayer, where we have unwittingly, anyways, started to think of prayer as a kind of mechanical thing that we have to get procedurally correct for it to work. And so that Jesus is here like a prayer manual writer who has troubleshooting tables in the back of the manual. And he said, okay, if your husband continues to be a jerk after praying for him for seven straight years, refer to column B3. And you turn to B3 and it says, ha ha. Your problem is you've only been praying twice a day, every day. You need to up your prayer time to seven times a day. And you need to make sure you sprinkle in at least 12 praises. You're asking too much. You're not praising enough. You've got to get the ratio right. Now that sounds silly, right? Except I've heard people talk like this. And I've thought it myself. You might have thought it yourself. You can sometimes think, maybe I'm just praying wrong. But that misunderstands what it is altogether. Jesus doesn't spend a lot of time telling people the mechanics of prayer because it's such a personal thing. It's such a relational thing. And that's why you have all kinds of different forms of it in the Psalms, our prayer book, that people are just starting out where they are, where they hurt, where they ache. Sometimes it's praise and sometimes it's anger. And Jesus is saying, won't God listen? Won't God be persuaded to his chosen ones, his elect, you, who have come under his sway, who are crying out, fulfilling your vocation, asking the king for governance in the world that hasn't happened yet? See, prayer is not some mechanical thing. He's not telling you how to pray, like, how do you, how do you get your golf swing right? What you're supposed to do with your elbow and how your backswing's supposed to be just so. How your hips are supposed to swivel. He's not telling you how to pray so that like you may have in your home somewhere on the mountain a phone issue. Where if you stand in one corner and on one foot and hold your hand this way, you get one bar. Should you move or anyone in the house move, the dog walks across, stop it! The signal goes away. And it's this precarious... Almost superstitious kind of thing. I've got to get the words right. I've got to get the mechanics right. I've got to get everything right with me. 
so that I can talk to him. And Jesus is saying, here's a widow, which corresponds to chosen ones, that he's wanting to pray and not give up. And here's where you have an analogy with the widow. You don't have another recourse. And prayer's not dumb. It's a thing. It's a way, not of technique, but it's mainly just asking. Give me, give me, she says. She comes with a plea. She pleads for something. Give me justice against my adversary. Protect me. Put him down. Make him stop it. She's asking. Prayer is mainly just asking. There are other aspects to it, of course. But it's mainly, in its purest Bible form, it's just asking. Jesus says, ask. It will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open. Give us this day our daily bread. It's important to realize that prayer is largely just asking. It's not some technique that you have to get right. It's talking to someone who's rather fond of you and predisposed to listen to you already. And if you'll think about this, your own childhood, if you happen to grow up in a home where you asked for things at some point and nothing ever happened, or you were told to shut up, or you were told we don't have enough money for that, you know what you probably learned to do? Not ask anymore. But conversely, it's interesting. It's like I've read reports about like the more you eat, the more you want to eat. I, I've never experienced it, but I've read reports. That children who ask for a lot of things and get a lot of things, you know what they tend to do? Keep asking for a lot of things. Because you think it matters. When you've done a lot of requesting and you know that the one to whom you request, they regard your request, they're willing to bend to the request, they're able to take it to themselves and they they think about it and it alters them. And you learn, if you need something, you should ask for it. So whether you grew up in the one way or the other as a Christian, rooting out whatever you learned bad and adopting what Jesus says so that you pray and always give up, part of your vocation is calling out, crying out. And most of you are pretty good at doing that. I've heard recently a whole lot of even dads. I wouldn't think of men as, men who, as, as people who pray. I hear a lot of dads cry out all the time at umpires. <laughs> Loudly, with passion. Grant me justice against my adversary! (laughs) Their unwitting cry of the heart. And I'm speaking about them. I'm not speaking about me. Because I've never done that. Have mercy, O Lord. But most of prayer is just... It's just asking. It's crying out. It's saying, calling is my calling. And it would be interesting, wouldn't it, if you reinforce this in some weird way? And some of you may try it sometime just to to remind yourself what you're up to in the world. And someone says, what do you do? What do you do? Hey, Bob. Jim. How you doing? How's business? What is it you do again? I call out to the Most High God. Say that and see if everybody clears away. I witness the world's tragedies and I, and I feel in my bones its unwellnesses. 
And I, I, I shake with the injustices around me. And so I have to turn off the dang TV and I cry out to the resurrected Lord whose guts also shake. And the more desperate I am, the louder and more fiercely I do it. Because I know he'll hear me. I call out for a living. Because I am a person who has been endowed with the dignity of being an image bearer of the great king. And the great king has tasked me with helping him run the universe. Oh, arrogant much? No. Just believing. And believing people say, as Helmut Tilika noted about this passage, that God is giving his church an invitation to join him in the governance of the world with this passage. Will not God hear his chosen ones who cry out day and night for justice? Will he long delay them? He's basically saying, hey, is there injustice? Do you see awful things happening in racial relations? Do you have friends who are treated so awfully because of the color of their skin? Do you know people who don't have enough money and their life is walking around like Pigpen's dirt cloud, except it's a cloud of sorrow that just keeps raining on everything that happens to them? Do you see unfairnesses? Do you see it in your own life? Unwellnesses. This cry for justice is a cry for God to repair things that are broken, to reattach things that have been busted apart, to pull together disparate things in reconciliation. And so in this room right now, there's plenty of things to cry out about. Sleeplessness and worry and trouble and heartache and disease and sadness. Things that God has not done anything yet about. And he says, here's how we can do something about it. Your daily work, yes. And ask me. Ask me. Keep asking me. Keep on coming back. Because I'm inclined to listen in prayer is not a technique, it is largely just asking. And some of that asking is for justice. And he puts this question to him. I tell you, they will get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Jesus knows that this prayer, this persistent kind of keeping at it prayer that we need each other to do. We need to do it together. We need the Bible to help, I think, so you can grab hold of promises so that you know what they are, so that you have something to hang on to when you take your request to God to give justice, to fulfill his promises, to make happen what he said he would make happen. But he knows that if you're going to have this kind of faith that does this, you're going to be have, having to give yourself to this kind of prayer. It's how faith is created and it's how it's nourished. I was at the dentist this week. I try to go like a sabbatical once every seven years. 
So we were there for a really long time. And the lady, she was saying something about flossing or whatever, you know. Do you floss? I said, yeah, yeah, sure. Every seven years, like when I come here. And she was telling me, you know, if you had a choice between brushing and flossing, you know, like some kind of desert island situation, it would be more important for you to floss than to brush. I was like, okay, okay, I've got it. But it was struck with, it stuck with me. That's interesting how important flossing is, this thing I never do. Except every, you know, every seven years. How critical it is, something that seems so insignificant and something you can go large periods of time without thinking about. And that Jesus would say, prayer is the flossing of the Christian life. If you must bail out of other kinds of Christian activities, don't you dare injure yourself by failing to dare to keep calling out to God for all the unwellness around you. There are people in here whose faith has been sustained because they pray with some other believers. And when they do that, not only do they see answers, they see Jesus and they learn about him by hearing the prayers of the people around them. They get emboldened by being prayed for. There are people in here who have risked asking God to call out for them or their family or some issue. And it's always a risk. You always feel silly. You think that widow felt silly? Probably not. She got desperate enough. When you get desperate enough, you don't feel silly no more. You're always worried about being a bother. Most of us live our lives. We're respectable citizens. The primary goal of your life is to not be a bother to anyone, isn't it? And here's a parable saying... Here's the goal of your life as the disciples. Be a bother to God. Keep coming at him. Keep coming to him. Of course, anybody who's been a parent or a friend would say, it's no bother for the people I love to keep coming to me, to keep asking of me, for my children to keep needing me, to keep wanting me, to keep conversing with me, to keep expecting from me, to keep... Realizing that I'm the cure for what ails them? Prayer is no technique. It's mainly just asking. And it's largely about asking for justice, for God to put together what is badly missing. To fix what is broken. And prayer itself is this floss of the Christian life, which is meant to sustain your faith for the long Oh, it's not dumb. But you'll think it is. And I close with this. A story that I read about this chaplain who was at the hospital and he saw a woman, a frantic woman, beating on the door. She let me in! She beat on the door, her head leaning against it. Let me in! Let me in! He didn't know what it was, so he walked up to her and said, Can I help you? And she said, They've got the door locked. It was the door to the chapel. So he helped her get a key, and they went in, and he heard her saying, he can't die. He can't die yet. And he said, what's happening? Her husband had a heart attack. He said, I think she was about... 40 years old, she had come to the hospital and she clearly wasn't prepared to be at the hospital. She had on no shoes. 
Her face was not made up. Her hair was strewn about. She had a look of desperation. And when I said, may I pray for you? She said, yes, please. And I started to pray. For her and her husband, and she interrupted me. She didn't just interrupt me, he said. She took over. She started praying herself, and she stopped my prayer. I think maybe I was too quiet or too slow or saying the wrong thing or something. Anyway, my prayer wasn't getting there, and she knew it. And so she said, Lord, this is not the time to take my husband. You know that better than I do. He's not ready. He never prays. He never goes to church or anything. He's not ready. This is not a good time to take him. In other words, she was pleading for the just God who had secured salvation to do what only he could do to remove the blinders that the evil one had put on her husband. He's not ready. Don't take him now. And what about me? If I have to raise these kids, what am I going to do? I don't have any skills. I can't find any work. I quit school to marry this guy. And if I had known you were going to take him out of state in school. She was really talking to God, he said. And what about the kids? They don't mind me with him here. With him gone, they're going to run buck wild. And then what will I do? This is not the time to take my husband, she said. He said, I stayed as long as I felt useful. And then I left. And the next day I saw her and she was cleaned and dressed and in her right mind, we'll say. Made up and then fixed up. Her husband was better. And she smiled and said, I'm sorry I was so crazy yesterday. He said, well, you weren't crazy. And she said, I guess the Lord heard one of us. And I said, he heard you. She was desperate the day before. She had God by the lapels, both hands, and was screaming in his face, I don't think you're listening. That's, he said, desperation. Some of you are desperate. I'm sorry. But you've got an invitation that you should pray and not give up. And the people with the largest faith do the craziest praying because they know they're not just perpetrating a dumb activity that goes into the air. They're talking to the sovereign Lord who likes them. To a Savior who has cried out himself, please take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but you will. To a Savior who cried out, why have you forsaken me so that he will never forsake you? Are you desperate? I call you to the seemingly dumb activity, a frequent, bothersome, Prayer. Amen.